Good afternoon, everybody online in here uh, who's present. Uh, join me in prayer again uh, before we get started. Pray that God would speak to us and that, um, that we would hear from him today as we work through Philippians chapter 2 together, that the Spirit would convict us and help us to have understanding and, and uh, help us to, to know him uh, in a deeper way through uh, Philippians 2. But join me in prayer if you can. Um, Lord, we come before you, Jesus, and we ask you that, uh, God, you would glorify yourself today as you already have through how we've sung uh, truth together as your body, God, as, as we've um, uh, been able to see one another do that as, as, a, as a body of Christ. God, and, and in humility today, we come before you and we, we ask that you would um, give us ears to hear. God, help us to understand your word. God, help us to know how we can, can uh, live lives that are glorifying to you um, in joyful partnership with one another, striving side by side. God, we want to do that for your glory. Um, we, we pray that in your name, Jesus. We pray that you would uh, do that right now. In your name I pray. Amen. Uh, many of you uh, have probably read the great literary classic written by famous Dr. Seuss called Yertle the Turtle. You know, if not, I'd encourage you to, uh, to watch it on YouTube, to read it sometime today when you get home. But it's a story about a turtle named Yertle who's king over all of the turtles in the pond. And in the beginning of the story, this ambitious king of the pond sat on his throne, which was made out of stone as he proclaimed that his kingdom that he ruled over was too small because the throne that he sat on was too short. So he believed that he ruled over everything that he could see. And so he had to make his throne taller so that he could see more in order to make his kingdom greater and to make himself greater. And so Yertle the turtle, he, he ordered nine of his turtles to stand on each other's backs on top of his throne of stone so that his throne would be taller so that he could see more, so that his kingdom would grow, and that he would become greater. And throughout the book, he orders 200 more turtles to stand on top of each other's backs. And Yertle, he ignores the concerns of his fellow turtles. They were hungry, their backs were hurting. But all he was concerned with was expanding his own kingdom. He was concerned with making himself greater. And at one point, as they're complaining, and as they're trying to express their concerns to him, he lashes out and says, You have no right to talk to the world's highest turtle. I rule from the clouds over land, over sea. There is nothing, no nothing higher than me. Until Yertle spotted the moon in the sky that was higher than he was. And this led to him ordering 5,607 more turtles to stand on top of each other. And as he's about to make his throne taller and his kingdom greater and himself greater, a turtle named Mac at the bottom of the stack burped, causing that whole throne to just sway back and forth, and Yertle fell to the ground along with his kingdom. You know, it's a silly story, but it gives us a good illustration about what happens when we're driven by our own selfish ambition and what it looks like when we only live to expand our own kingdoms, to exalt ourselves. In the end, it's a path that leads to our downfall, and we leave behind us on the way, division, destruction, disunity. 
If you remember from uh, Trevor's message last week, as he uh, gave us some of the background, the context of the book of Philippians, one of the many reasons that Paul's writing to the church in Philippi is to address some of the, the internal problems that exist. There seems to be some seeds of disunity that exist within the church, and if they're not dealt with, then this could grow into a full-blown disunity, division within the church. And as we take a look at chapter 2 of Philippians today, Paul, he continues to emphasize the need for the Philippian church to be unified, which he already did in, in chapter 1, verse 27. Remember, Paul, he wrote, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he continues to emphasize this theme of unity going into chapter 2. And in, in verses 1 and 2, he writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And in, in verses 3 through 11, which is what we're mainly going to be focusing in on today, Paul, he begins to teach us about a specific kind of mindset that we should have if we're going to remain unified as a body of Christ. And this is the same mindset that Christ had as, and as his followers we should have if we're going to live lives worthy of the gospel, standing firm in joyful partnership with one another. And so our main idea is very simple today. It comes from actually verse 5, and we'll eventually get there. It says, it's going to be have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's our main idea. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And when I say mindset, understand that this doesn't just involve how we think. It does involve that, but it also involves our feelings, our motivations, our desires, which leads to us living in a certain way. It's our attitude towards others that expresses itself in how we outwardly treat them. And so if having the same mindset that Christ had is so important, then we have to understand what kind of mindset we should have towards others and then what this looks like when it's fleshed out, right? And that's how we're going to break down verses 3 through 11 today, which is what we'll mainly be focused on. But we're going to try to answer these two questions, and these are going to be kind of our two main points or kind of our structure for today. The first being, what kind of mindset should we have towards others? So what kind of mindset should we have towards others? That's going to be verses 3 through 4. And then secondly, what does it look like to live with this mindset? So what does it look like to live with this mindset? Verses 5 through 11. And Lord willing, we'll walk away with a better understanding of how we can live lives worthy of the gospel, standing in a joyful partnership with one another, having the same mindset that Christ had. And so let's read, let's begin by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians. And we'll read again Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Paul commands in chapter 2, verse 3, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what kind of mindset should we have towards others? This first question. Paul answers this in verses 3 through 4. And first, in verse 3, he actually shows us what kind of mindset that we should not live with. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition meaning to be self-seeking. And another way to translate conceit is vainglory or an, an empty glory. And so this is someone who has a spirit of rivalry or a desire to elevate themselves. They have a self-above-others approach to life. They're not concerned with the, the interest of others. Instead, they're motivated with this desire, this attitude to serve self with the end goal being to bring themselves glory. And all it is is an empty glory, a vain glory. Kind of like Yertle the Turtle in the beginning, right? And this is pride. You know, Paul uses the same language in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, where he describes those who are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. And they're doing this with a selfish ambition. You know, selfish ambition, it can be expressed in different ways. And we can see in chapter 1 that their selfish ambition was expressed through being envious of Paul. And, doesn't, and he doesn't spell out exactly what these men were envious of. You know, did they want the same attention that Paul wanted? Did they want to be loved like Paul was loved by the members of the church in Philippi? Did they want the authority that Paul had as an apostle? You know, we don't know, but they viewed him as his rival. They were motivated to preach Christ out of selfish ambition. They had a self-above-others approach to life, and rather than loving Paul, they tried to bring him even more misery in his imprisonment. And this is obvious to some of the members within the church in Philippi because Paul finds out why they were doing what they were doing, right? And we can see how when they or we live in this, with this kind of mindset, how it could cause division within the body of Christ if this mindset is the driving factor behind why we make the decisions that we make, why we do what we do, how we treat others the way that we treat them. And I would argue that the pride of selfish ambition is often at the root of many of the arguments, you know, the moments of gossip, and any other sins that threaten to bring about division, if left undealt with. You know, this is what James writes in James 3.16. He says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You know, think about many of the incidents where disunity has been caused within our lives, maybe even just this week. You know, within the context of our families, I mean, none of us ever have arguments within our, our families, right? You know, kids, you know, why, why did you snatch that toy from your brother or your sister this week? You know, what drove you to do this? Were you, were you focused only on yourself in that moment, which led to you being willing to, to push and to snatch and to take what wasn't yours? You know, selfish ambition looks like you being envious and jealous because they have what you don't have which leads to you treating them in an unloving way, causing arguments and divisions within the home. You know, spouses. You know, maybe you had an argument with your spouse, your better half this week. You know, I can think of moments uh, where the Lord has used Jessica to reveal sin in my life. 
and I don't always respond in the way that I should. You know, I, I should repent of my sin and do this quickly, you know, and, and seek forgiveness from the Lord, seek forgiveness from her. But sometimes, even when I know that she is right, I try to redirect the focus to her and how she actually needs to be the one who works on the sin in her life, right? Which leads to, to awkward silence until eventually I listen to the conviction of the Spirit and I seek forgiveness from her. And what motivates me to do that in those moments? What motivates us to respond in those kind of ways? You know, there's a pride there, an elevated view of myself that's threatened, and, and I choose to live for my own empty glory in those moments, right? You know, what about churches? You know, I'm sure we'd be surprised about how many churches, how many uh, churches split over issues that aren't even doctrinal issues. But arguments where peacemaking could not take place between the two different parties involved because they're too focused on fulfilling their own selfish ambitions. They're too focused on their own vain glory, bringing glory to themselves and not, and not the, the, the concerns of others. They're not focused on unity in those moments. James writes again in, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, selfish ambition, when undealt with, it leads to disunity and division within the body of Christ. And so Paul is commanding them and us not to live with that kind of mindset, to put off that mindset. Don't live with this selfish ambition, a self-before-others approach for your own empty glory. But rather, Paul writes in the second half of verse 3 and in verse 4, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So Paul instead commands us to put on or to live with a different kind of mindset, to live with this mindset of humility, which is completely opposite of pride. You know, biblical humility, Gordon Fee writes, has to do with a proper estimation of ourselves, the stance of the creature before the Creator, utterly dependent and trusting. Here one is well aware of both one's weaknesses and of one's glory but makes neither too much nor too little of either. True humility is therefore not self-focused at all. And so biblical humility is it's a lowliness that comes from having a right understanding of who we are in relationship to God and others. That God is our creator and that he's created us to serve him and to serve others in love. And that God, that this understanding, it shouldn't lead us to be focused on ourselves. And instead, it, it should uh, give us a mindset of humility that leads us, as Paul writes in, the, in verses 3 and verse 4, to count others more significant than ourselves. And we begin to, to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, our view of others changes. We no longer see others as less important or less significant than ourselves. Instead, we view others as worthy of our service. And we begin to, as we begin to view others as worthy of our service, which, becomes, which comes from this heart of humility, then our focus shifts from being self-centered to us now looking out for the interest of others. And interest here, it includes all interest within our lives. You know, fill in the blank. So we not look not only to our own financial well-being, our own health, our own happiness, our own joy, our own reputation, our own spiritual growth, but we're just as concerned with the financial well-being, 
the health, the happiness, the joy, the reputation, the spiritual growth of others? Now, are we looking out for the good of others just as much as we are looking out for our own good? And this falls in line with what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 12, verse 31. He teaches us that the second greatest commandment is, is what? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we love our neighbors as ourselves by looking out for the interest, their interests just like we look out for our own. And this is hard work, right? You know, because this takes planning and strategizing, effort, our time. It can be difficult and it will involve sacrifice and involve suffering. But this is such an important part of the Christian life. And we can see how when we live with this kind of mindset of humility in which we seek to serve others rather than being served, that it brings about more unity rather than division. Unity within our marriages, unity within our families, unity within the church as well. And so this mindset is a, it's a mindset of humility that leads us to self-sacrificially serving others. But what does living with this kind of mindset of humility look like when it's fleshed out in our lives? Well, Paul gives us the perfect example by directing our focus to Christ and his example of humility in verses 5 through 11. And as we focus in on his example, then we will practically see what it looks like. So Paul writes in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I believe the NASB translate this, translates this a little bit better here. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or even the NIV, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so Paul is commanding the members of the Philippian church and us to have the same mindset which he described in verses 3 through 4, a mindset of humility which Christ also had. And so what does it practically look like? Well, first it looks like giving up our privileges to be poured out as a servant. So giving up our privileges to be poured out as a servant. You know, take a look at verses 6 through 7. Paul wrote, Who though he was in the form of God, speaking about Jesus and his example, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When Paul writes that Jesus was in the form of God, this means that he is fully God. He's always been fully God. But what does it mean when he writes that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? You know, the Philippians, they would have been familiar with the false gods of the Romans. And these gods were known for how they were always trying to grasp for more power to be used for their own selfish advantages. But Jesus is greater than those false gods, and he shows the true nature of the one true God by not grasping or trying to become equal with God because he's already equal with God. He's not trying to grasp for power and authority to, to, use, to use only for his own advantage. And Paul isn't speaking of how Jesus was trying to grasp or gain back something that he had lost. But he's showing how Jesus in humility gave up some of his divine rights and privileges. I mean, think about it. Jesus deserved to remain in his rightful position in heaven. But he didn't cling or grasp onto that, but willingly gave that position up for a time to step down into his creation. And Paul writes that instead of clinging on, the, on to these divine rights and privileges, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, a lot of people throughout history, and even some today, believe that Jesus was not equal to God the Son and God the Spirit because of this emptying that Paul writes about in verse 7. 
They would say that Christ, in becoming man, he gave up some of his divine attributes, right? That he completely gave up his divine attribute of being all-knowing or present everywhere, or that he was no longer all-powerful. But this isn't what Paul is referring to when he writes about the emptying here. Because that would go completely against Hebrews 13, verse 8, where Jesus is described as being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul's not saying that Jesus gave up any of his godness. Now, I like what Gordon Fee writes here again. He says, So Christ did not empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself. He poured himself out. This is a metaphor, pure and simple. He poured himself out how? By taking on the form of a servant or a slave to others. So Jesus, who has always been fully God, he gave up his rightful position in heaven to step down into his creation, to be born as a helpless baby, to experience weakness and hunger and temptation and tiredness, to experience the hatred of others and the ridicule of others, to experience pain. In humility, he willingly gave up his divine rights and privileges by emptying or pouring himself out by becoming fully man. And he came to self-sacrificially serve others. You know, this is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 52, verse 12, that the coming Messiah would pour out his soul to death and be numbered with the transgressors. You know, Jesus said of himself in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he did this in humility by, by looking not only to his own interests, but to, the, to our interests as well. He modeled servanthood by how he cared and showed compassion for those who were hurting, by how he cared for the diseased and the hungry. He also modeled this by, how, by caring for the spiritual well-being of others through his conversations and his teachings. You think about how he modeled this through performing the duty of a, a lowly household servant by washing his disciples' feet while teaching in Luke 22, verse 27. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus gave up his divine rights and privileges to be poured out as a servant. Now, are we willing to do the same? You know, true humility, it will cost us our time. It will cost us our money, our sleep, our comfort, and so much more. Are we willing to give without expecting anything in return? to be poured out in service for others. And so having this same mindset as Christ Jesus looks like giving up our privileges to be poured out as a servant. And secondly, it looks like living a life of costly obedience. So living a life of costly obedience. Paul writes in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus, he exemplified what it looks like to walk in humility by being perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. He showed what it means to humbly submit to his will, even when it meant being obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but it says death on a cross, which was the most humiliating form of death during that time. Back then, the cross, it wasn't a symbol that... Uh, like, like we use like we use it now. They didn't have a, a cross on the top of the house that they met in. They didn't wear crosses around their necks. It was reserved for criminals and slaves and insurrectionists. But Jesus, who was innocent, was willing to die on a cross in obedience to the will of the Father. And his whole life of obedience led to his death, 
which accomplished our greatest need, which is salvation. You know, Jesus, he gives us the greatest example of what it means to consider the interest of others. Having this mindset of humility meant living a life of costly obedience that cost him his, his life so that we could have eternal life. And Jesus, he also calls us to take this same path as well. I mean, maybe that doesn't mean being crucified, but it does involve us daily denying our own selfish desires and ambitions taking up our crosses and, and walking in a humble obedience to the will of the Father by considering the interest of others. And this will often involve suffering. You know, Paul's already stated that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And you might ask, well, how, how could serving others in humility lead to my suffering? You know, think about this in the context of evangelism. You know, what's the greatest need that a person has? They need Christ, right? Part of what leads us to share the gospel with others is in humility, us living in obedience to God's commands to share these truths with others. And us also looking out for the interest of others, the greatest interest being their salvation. And, and when we obey in doing this, then this can lead to suffering. You know, we can be ridiculed, looked down upon, made fun of, or... Or maybe even like some all across the world who are thrown in jail and who lose their life because they're considering the interest of others. They're serving others by sharing the truth of Jesus, even to the point of obedience leading to death. What about when we see our brother or our sister in Christ who's struggling with sin? And we in humility consider their own spiritual health as more important than our own. And so in obedience, we, we lovingly confront them in their sin. And they may not respond like we would hope they would in that moment. They may respond in anger. They may lash out at us. But humility often looks like costly obedience. There's so many ways that this could be applied. You think about the apostles and how they suffered and gave of themselves out of obedience to the will of God so that others could come to experience the joys of knowing Jesus. But this is, what, this is the life that we're called to live as followers of Christ. You know, humility looks like giving up our privileges. It looks like costly obedience. And lastly, it looks like taking the path of lowliness that leads to exaltation. You know, taking the path of lowliness that leads to exaltation. You know, if we step back and, and look at Jesus' example of humility here, we can see a clear path of lowliness. We're beginning in verse 6. Jesus is in his rightful position in heaven. But in humility, he saw our need for salvation. And he gave up that position to step down into his creation to become fully man. But not just to become a man, he became a servant. And he was obedient to the point of death. But not just any death, but death on a cross, right? A clear path of lowliness. But then we see that it was a path of lowliness that leads to his exaltation. Paul wrote in verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even though in humility Christ lived a life of obedience to the point of death on the cross for our salvation, he was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit and exalted to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is not just talking about believers. 
You know, the language used here is referring to how Christ will be the conqueror. You know, every creature will submit to the authority of Jesus, even if they choose not to now. But for those who choose not to now, it will be a time of judgment. But think about how this would have given the believers in Philippi, and it should give us right now perspective of this path of lowliness, a right perspective. It should give us an eternal perspective. That even though we suffer now as we walk the path of lowliness, that we should do so knowing that one day when we reach the end of this path, which will lead, it will lead to our exaltation with him, that Jesus will one day make all things right. And what Paul is teaching here would have gone completely against the values that the Greco-Roman world held highly. You know, humility wasn't considered uh, a sought-after virtue. It was a sign of weakness. Even today, the main focus of our culture and the world is how we can be filled rather than how we can be emptied for others. Now, how can I exalt myself to the highest position? How can I gain more power, more security, even at the expense of others? And we can see within the scriptures what happens when people choose to take that path, the path of exalting themselves now, which ultimately leads to destruction. You think about Satan. His own selfish ambition and desire to exalt himself led to him being cast out of heaven along with all the other angels who followed that same path. You know, Adam followed the same path. He listened to Satan and his own selfish ambition to become like God led to disobedience, sin entering into the world and the fall of mankind. In the New Testament, Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, motivated by his own selfish ambition, he sold out Jesus for a bag of coins which we know eventually led to his own destruction. This path, it can be enticing. It can be tempting to take, to be motivated by our own selfish ambition, to live for our own glory now, you know, in hopes that we'll be exalted here and now, which could happen, or it might not. But either way, it will lead to our destruction. And maybe you've realized that this is the path that you've been walking on because you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation. You've been living a life in which you've just been trying to exalt yourself. You're trying to fulfill your own selfish ambitions. Then I hope that you will see that walking on this path, it will just lead to ultimately your destruction. But also, do not think that humility is a virtue that we can just produce within ourselves. That if we can just be more humble, that we can change our standing before God. See, God, He, he initially brings about humility in our lives through the power of the gospel when he allows the, the gospel to break into our lives. He humbles us, and he brings us low by helping us see our hopelessness apart from Jesus. And he frees us from living this self-centered life for our own glory. But this begins with, with seeing your sin for what it is, seeing what Jesus has done on your behalf, and, and submitting to him in humility, placing your faith in him. And I hope that if that is you, that you would respond to his call to you to trust in him by faith. But brothers and sisters here at Grace, we've been called to take a different path, a path of lowliness, which involves us serving God in obedience and serving others out of love. And we do this not looking for any kind of reward now, but we walk this path with an eternal perspective, knowing that one day this path of lowliness will lead to exaltation. We will be exalted with Jesus will be made like him and experience a fullness of joy. 
And so in conclusion, why is this important for us as a church? Well, you remember that one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter is to address some of the seeds of disunity that had been planted within the church. He's already addressed some of those in chapter 1, you know, those who are preaching Christ out of a selfish ambition. And later on in chapter 4, we'll see how he addresses the disunity that exists between two different women within the church. He's trying to address these seeds of disunity before they grow and cause great division within the church. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that we should also be on guard against allowing ourselves to be motivated with an attitude of selfish ambition. That we don't allow each other to live for our own empty and vain glory. You know, this involves all of us as a church. And just think about how beautiful this looks when we're all unified as one body of Christ with this same mindset guarding against disunity and shining as lights in this world, which Paul actually writes about in verses 14 through 16. I wish we had more time to, to look at the rest of chapter 2. I know Keith had mentioned it. I didn't know how I would cover this chapter, but Paul gives uh, three other examples of what it looks like to walk in humility in this chapter. This whole chapter is centered around uh, Christ and his humility, how we're called to have the same mindset. And he gives example after example of others within the church who exemplify this. Just to give you a few, Paul, he gives his own example of how he's being poured out as a drink offering. He writes about uh, Timothy and how there was no one like him who was genuinely concerned for their welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. He gives the example of Epaphroditus, how he risked his life to complete what was lacking in their service to him. But Paul even explains how Epaphroditus did not want to cause any worry or distress for the believers in Philippi. This guy is worried about how much distress he's causing the members of the church in Philippi because they heard that he's sick and he almost died. And what a beautiful example of what it means to consider the interest of others greater than your own. And I want, I'm encouraged because, church, there's such a, a, a unity that exists among us. There's, there's so many members here within Grace Fellowship Church where we could probably have our own list of, of those who uh, seek to selflessly serve others, who are, are, are beautiful examples of how we are, are God has graced us to be uh, unified as a body of Christ. And so I want to encourage us to continue living with this mindset, Grace Fellowship Church. You know, this involves all of us as a body of Christ. And as we go from here, let us examine our motivation behind why we would do what we do. Why do we make the decisions that we make? Why do we treat others the way that we do? Is it selfish ambition or are we walking in humility? You know, are we walking in humility, seeking to selflessly serve others by having the same mindset that Christ Jesus had? Let's pray. God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And God, there's just so much here in chapter 2 uh, that we couldn't cover today. Um, but we, we see just this beautiful thread and the emphasis on unity through humility that you wrote through Paul. God, we're thankful for how, God, there's such a unity that exists here, even among uh, us as members of the church uh, here at Grace Fellowship. 
God, I pray that you continue to enable us to be unified as a body so that we can be lights in this uh, crooked and twisted generation, like you say in Philippians 2. Um, God, help us to be lights through our unity. Help us to display the gospel and how we're unified. Lord, help us to serve one another in humility, to have the same mind that Christ had. By the power of the Spirit, Lord, we ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.